For the first time in a while, I feel actually kind of almost healthy, which is a really lovely thing to feel. The sun is shining. The Respect for Marriage Act is being signed today as we speak, which is kind of interesting given my guest today. But nonetheless, it's a good day from my point of view. There's a, <laughs> there's a, a wild and massive celebration of the White House to which I have not been invited, which is fine by me. And I'm glad to be back. Today, we have, I hope, a really challenging guest. We have others coming up. We have Glenn Lowry coming up, someone I've always wanted to interview. And also John Gray, the, the British writer-philosopher, who is also of my top 10 people I've wanted to have on the Dishcast. He's also coming up. Um, but today, Carl Truman. He's a Christian theologian and ecclesiastical historian. He's currently a professor of biblical and religious studies at Grove City College, as well as an ordained minister in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. He's the author of many books, but in Today, we're going to discuss one that comes up a lot recently, certainly in my emails and to some extent also in some of the bloggers and writers like Rod Dreher and the integralists and all the new conservative sort of Catholic types. This book has become a bit of a hit, a bit of a sensation almost. It's called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. And they just, I'm told, produced a condensed version. Is that right, Carl? Uh, yes. It's called Strange New World, How Thinkers and Activists Redefined Identity and Sparked the Sexual Revolution. Carl, thank you so much for, for coming on the Dishcast and talking about this. That's great to be here, Andrew. I've enjoyed your writings for many years, so it's great to finally see you and, and interact a little. Thank you. You're, and you're a stealth Brit, of course. I, they're, they're, they're out there, and trust me, Listeners, I don't seek out the English accents. I, I sometimes don't realize they are English until I actually speak with them. So, but tell us, Carl, where were you born then and, and where, where in England did you grow up? Well, I was born in Dudley in the Midlands, but grew up from the age of six or seven over in the West Country. I think you're from the Southeast. I'm more or less from the, the Southwest, like yourself. English grammar school boy, went to the local grammar school. I had a slightly happier experience of rugby, I think, while I was there than, than you did yourself. <laughs> Though I could certainly recognize your description of rugby and some of the things that you've, uh, you've written. Went to the University of Cambridge, where I studied classics, and from there to the University of Aberdeen, where I, I, I did a sort of shift. I moved from ancient history to Reformation history. Spent much of my life professionally teaching 16th, 17th century Reformation history. So the book that you brought me on to discuss is represents something of a change of direction. Happy to be married to my wife, Katrina, for 32 years and father of two sons and recently grandfather of little baby Emily. So entering wow. a delightful phase of my life from that perspective. Congratulations. How is the, how is the adjustment to to America. Well, I arrived, my wife and I arrived, I think, around about August the 17th, 2001. Oh. So within three weeks, three or four weeks, of course, we found ourselves as foreigners in a country in a, in a state of emergency and panic, I think. So our transition was, was rather unusual and not as smooth as, as we expected. But I guess like yourself, over the years, you, you start off with that Initially, everything's interesting, then everything becomes annoying, and finally you reach this sort of passive acceptance of, of the way things are. And, 
America's been good to me and my family, and I think we've we we're very much rooted here. Now, of course, I'm ironically the the blood relative of a of a native-born American citizen, which is slightly strange to think of. There you are. It's 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 not exactly the first time an Englishman is. That's happened to one. It's been going on for quite a while. Indeed. Why, why did you become interested in church history and that and Christianity in general? Is that something that came out of your, your upbringing or was it something that you discovered? No, I, was, I didn't grow up in a Christian home at all. We, never, we, we, we may have gone to church for a carol service or something like that. I, I really became interested in Christianity in my, my last year at uh, grammar school. And during my time at, at Cambridge, and so I, I developed a, I became a Christian. I, I had a personal existential connection to the faith, if you like. But the interest in church history at Cambridge was, was that at Cambridge or at the last year? It was at Cambridge. School? Yes, I started to read when I was at high school, but it was really at Cambridge. A bunch of Christian friends started going to church that I that I would actually say at that point I became committed. Christian and the academic interest was a spin-off from that. Ironically, at the end, you know, I did classics, so inevitably was finding it hard to get a job on graduation. <laughs> and of all the applications I sent out, the one that returned with some fruit was my application to the University of Aberdeen to do a PhD in Reformation history. And they not only gave me a place, but gave me a scholarship, which solved the, the financial problem. So I I sort of blundered into the Reformation. But I've always had an interest in why do people think the way they do at particular points in time? Yeah. My undergraduate supervisor at Cambridge was a card-carrying Marxist, and he was the guy who really switched me on to history as, a, as an analytic, explanatory kind of discipline. Not a Marxist myself, but his tutorials were really superb and, and, and lighted uh, an interest in me in, in that kind of thing. That period, 16th and 17th century, or... Reformation England. It's actually what my, my special subject at Oxford was was Edward the Sixth and Mary the First. I was that was a for me that was also a really fascinating period in history where very big things were at stake. So a really revolutionary shift in consciousness was happening. And you can see in those particular two short lived reigns before Elizabeth kind of came to try and figure a a way through the middle of all of it, a zeal and a, a moment that's that's hard to imagine. Or and and part of what you've been writing really is that is that we have been going through since the 1960s essentially a, a similar kind of shift in in re, in consciousness. Maybe maybe that's a too big a leap. But so tell me about your fascination with that p- part of history, with the 16th, 17th yeah. century. Yeah, well, I came to it through reading, I just picked up in a bookstore once, Roland Bainton's little book, Here I Stand, on Martin Luther. And the narrative of Luther's life just fascinated me, that here was this man who seemed to iconoclastically break with with so much of his day and miraculously survived. You know, the, the chances of Luther surviving in 1517 to die relatively peacefully in 1546 were pretty small, but but he managed it. So there was a an almost a boy's own adventure story kind of interest in that. But as I explored Luther, it became clear to me that so many different things are coming into play at the Reformation. You have, connecting to my later work, I suppose, you have an emergence of a new understanding of, of what it means to be a person, what it means to 
to experience the world, how the world was imagined. And there was a clear technological component, the, the, the printing press, which is really, I, I don't want to reduce the Reformation to the printing press, as some do, but I, I think the printing press is a fascinating catalyst for transforming European society, both politically, religiously, and personally as well. Power shifts, you have 150 years of bloody warfare as a society tries to reconstitute itself around the impact of things like the printing press and the Reformation. So I became fascinated really in in an era of, I would say, sort of tremendous flux and change, but where the engines of change were relatively straightforward and could be identified. I think today we're in a world where, wow, there are so many engines of change, it's hard to get a handle on them. In the Reformation, you have a relatively confined geographical area and a single technological in- innovation that's driving it. So that was something that... But also a spiritual and a spiritual religious zeal at work that, 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 that combines with this new technology to, to really split societies in two. And that, of course, is where, in some ways, you could argue, and I, I think I would argue, to some extent, that's where the, the, the beginnings of the modern individual can be found, the, 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 the statement of conscience, which is in some ways hard for, the, for Catholic orthodoxy before then to fully acknowledge. Yet it's a kind of critical moment, the, the kind of conscience that is then exemplified by being martyred or burned at the stake, the, this, this, or the, the, the kind that's sort of mythologized in A Man for All Seasons with Thomas More. There's this, I mean, very anachronistically, but nonetheless. Is that where you think the modern self begins to emerge? That's a great question. And uh, it's interesting. Some of the uh, some of the back and forth I've had on email with, with people emailing me about the book is, you know, why did you, I start really in the 18th century. And the question is, why yes. did you start the Reformation? Why didn't exactly. you start with late medieval Catholicism. I had one person email me, why didn't you start with Adam and Eve in the garden? It's a kind of, well, you know, I got to start somewhere and make the book less than 100,000 pages long. But there's definitely something there. The the emergence of, I, I think, on, there are many things one could say, but I would say these two things, I think, are, are critical. One, the emergence of individual responsibility, that certainly, as you find it emerging in the Reformed tradition in the Puritans, and even in the Catholic Jesuit tradition, and, and, and people like Ignatius Loyola, pushes people inward somewhat. They start to look more inward than outward for authority. So I think that's... Or uh, I think, uh, of, think of Pascal. Or Pascal, yes, the Augustinian yes. tradition, I think, that's feeding through him. And, and the, the, But with him, there's this mysticism, too, the, 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 ex, the expression of something that takes him out of himself, and then the, then the very personal, intimate uh, statements of faith or disbelief that he has. It's very, very modern. It seems yeah. to me that in some ways, when I think of him, I think of the, the only person before him I think of in that way is Augustine. But Augustine is like just this person out of time and space. He's, he's, he's just, he, was, he was a modern self so long ago. Yeah, although I would even say... There's a mod, there's a modernity to Pascal that you don't find in in Augustine because you have that statement from Pascal. You know, when I when I contemplate the infinite silence of the eternal spheres, I feel alone and afraid. I, I never pick that up in Augustine. Augustine always, I think, feels mm. that 
the universe speaks loudly to him of the existence of God. Pascal believes in God, but I think he wishes he could hear him more loudly from nature. I could put it that way. There's that well, isn't that, that it, the modern? Let's, let's get to it. That's sort of one of the, the the quintessential modern predicament. Absolutely, it's not that we don't want God. In some ways, many people would say, "If only." But the but I look at we look around us. The evidence of our senses, the evidence of science, the evidence of history, the distraction of the present. All of it effectively makes it very hard. And w- one of the concepts you you talk about here is Charles Taylor's The Social Imaginary, which is how we think of ourselves as a whole, as a, as a, as a, as a society and what core values we have. So explain how you think that, that emerged after the Reformation and the beginning of the, and the 18th century where you pick up and where it led to. Yeah, well, the, the social imaginary is Taylor's term really for explaining you know, why we think about most of the stuff that we think about the way we do. I mean, I, I don't know about you, but I've not read a science book since I was, about, last time I played rugby was probably the last time I read a science book. And yet, you know, when we finish this podcast today, I'm going to leave the room through the door. I don't know why doors work. I just happen to know that they work. I couldn't tell you the science of, of doorways and of atoms, etc. And Taylor used this idea of the social imaginary show that, that most of the way we think about the world, including the way we think in terms of the morality or the meaning of the world, is by and large intuitive. It's not that yeah, we have the moral codes we have, not because we've read Kant and been convinced by the metaphysics of morals. It's we've grown up in a certain kind of world and been trained to internalize that kind of world, to relate to that world intuitively. So I, th- I think Taylor's social imaginary is, is very helpful for understanding why we think the way we do. When you bring it to, to the Reformation and the notion of the self that's coming from the Reformation, I think, well, first of all, I mentioned a few moments ago, one of the big things coming from the Reformation is that, that move inward, I think. But the second thing, big thing, is religion becomes a choice. Taylor has this, I think, very insightful comment that I, I use in class at Grove all the time to try to get the, the students to think. I say, you know, Charles Taylor says you can believe exactly the same things today that somebody believed in 1450, but you cannot believe it in the same way because you choose to believe it. You have a responsibility for that belief that somebody growing up in my home village of Gloucestershire in 1450, they wouldn't have had that responsibility. There would have just been one heap of stuff to believe. Everybody believed it. It wasn't contested. They didn't feel any tension. So I think at the heart of the modern social imaginary, going back to the Reformation, there's also this notion that that religion is a choice. And when you think about that, it also plays in then into the idea that that our identities become to some extent a choice. Again, I say to the students at Grove, it's, it will sit in class and I'll say, you know, how many of you chose to come to Grove? They'll all put the hands up. How many of you are going to choose your career? They all put the hands up. And I'll say, you know, nobody in 1450 did that. You assume that that is normal, that that is real, that is natural. Nobody in 1450 had that choice, to which I'll always get the pushback. Well, wouldn't they have found that awkward or difficult? which my answer is, you know, growing up in the 1980s without a cell phone didn't bother me in the slightest because cell phones didn't exist. You tend to only be frustrated by the absence of something that's actually possible, that was actually there. So I think the, the, at the heart of the modern social imaginary, the notion of choice, freedom, personal responsibility, these are the big things. And, and you're absolutely right that the Reformation certainly 
I would argue they're emerging before the Reformation, and the Reformation itself mm -hmm. is a function of early occurrence. But the Reformation really, for want of a better term, institutionalizes these things. I'll take uh, us forward society. Yeah. to the 18th century where your, your book begins. Yeah, I think so. And you know, it's not, I, I entitled the chapter about Rousseau, where, where the book begins, you know, with the other Genevan. You chat to your typical Protestant Christian about the great Genevan, love him or hate him, they're going to think of John Calvin. And they're going to think John Calvin is one of the great founders of Western civilization, democracy, capitalism, et cetera, et cetera. None of which, by the way, he founded. But there's another great Geneva, and that's Jean-Jacques Rousseau. And I don't think that his Genevan context is incidental to the way he, he, he formulates his notion of the self. He's deeply indebted to, though he himself is, is not an exemplar of Orthodox Christianity, he's deeply indebted, I think, to the Orthodox European Christian culture, which is the product of the Reformation. And what does he do with the self? I think he, he internalizes and psychologizes it in He's not the first person to do that. Again, Descartes is, is doing a similar thing from a, an epistemological perspective. But what Rousseau does so beautifully, he's a great writer, is internalizes the self, I think, as a sort of cultural phenomenon. He's the guy who articulates the idea that it's, it's you know, put it very simply, it's society that messes this up. We are born free. It's civilization as it imposes its chains upon us that really prevents us from, from being the people we really are. And so then you get this sort of dynamic of self-liberation beginning, that, that in fact the goal is to, is to liberate the individual self from the oppressive forces around him or her. Yeah, I think with Rousseau we see the, the emergence of what we would now call the, the concept of authenticity. You know, what is the most important thing about being a human being? It's to be authentic. It's to, to be able to give outward expression to that which we truly are inside. And when I give the students at Grove this anecdote, they have no idea what I'm talking about. But you're a grammar school boy, Andrew, so you'll get exactly what I'm talking about. You and I did not go to school in order for our teachers to enable us to flourish as individuals. That's why we had to play rugby, for example. The, the whole idea was to have your individuality kind of beaten out of you, sometimes almost literally, to make you part of the team. Authenticity was not high on the agenda of, of English grammar school education in the 70s and 80s. And that's a very old-fashioned kind of view of education compared to that which Rousseau was visualizing in the 18th century, and which I think has become very strong. I think that Rousseau has sort of won the educational battle in, in many ways, and not entirely badly so. I'm certainly not saying that what you and I experienced at school was perfect or the best that should be. I'm simply commenting that the way we think about education now is very much in the wake of the kind of thinking that Rousseau was articulating. So I think most people listening to this development of, of the notion of the Western self would think, this is great. People are, have more freedom. They <laughs> then are, in exercising that freedom, realizing there are constraints, dealing with those constraints, undoing some of the, the boundaries and, 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 and restraints that have been placed upon them in their, shall we say, pursuit of happiness or whatever. So, so tell me why this, for you, is beginning to become a problematic story. <laughs> 
Yeah, it's, this really uh, this. By the way, I mean, this is we are we're, we're headed towards LGBTQ plus land at some point. I just want to give, that we are we, we're trying to get at the root of human identity here, which will bring into those 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 debates further. So so bear with us as we kind of map out the building blocks of this. So anyway, so so Carl, continue please on, on exactly how this liberated, constantly self-liberating self, you then, presumably, you hit Freud, who was the next person who realizes that the constraints actually are inside of us and invisible to us until we manifest them and somehow own them and somehow get past them. Yeah. Well, first of all, I, I certainly want to, 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 to affirm what you said about, you know, this sounds like a good thing. I would certainly say, you know, Rousseau, it, it's not he's not all bad he's not all good one of the things i think that guys like rousseau help us to see which i think is very important is that every human being has dignity when you look at the reformers when you look at the medieval theologians they hold notionally and principally to the idea that human beings are all made in the image of god but when you look at practically how they operate they tend to teach treat some human beings as better than others calvin for example is under no he has no doubt that some people are just born better than others. Some people are born to govern. Some people are born to be governed. I think one of the things that, that Rousseau and his contemporaries do in the Enlightenment that is so helpful is they clear that away, that every human being has dignity. Secondly, I think they, they grant an importance to the inner space that, that is there. Again, I don't want to bash on, I'm very grateful for my grammar school upbringing, but I would say maybe one of the things that grammar schools didn't do too well was teach you to handle your emotions. They were just not really acknowledged at school by and large. And I think all human beings are aware that we have an inner space, that we aren't simply externalities, that who I am is tied up to an extent with my inner sense of freedom, with my feelings, with the choices that those freedom, that those feelings drive. Who enjoyed lockdown? I don't, I, I don't know anybody who actually enjoyed it. Why? Because our freedom was inhibited and we felt that our selfhood was somehow being corralled there. Agree or disagree with lockdowns? I think that was a sort of universal feeling that we'd rather not do it. So I think there's a lot to be said for what Rousseau articulates. And then we come to Freud. And, and what Freud does is, I think he both improves on Rousseau, but also conceptually enables some of the, the, the what I would regard as the more problematic nature of, of modern society. Where he improves on Rousseau is I think Rousseau has this belief that you know, the inner self is this, is this place of sweetness and light. You know, it, we're, we're all kind of lovely people who just love to tend injured puppies left to our own devices. I think what Freud gets is that the inner space of human beings is much more ambiguous than that and is often a very dark place. Again, think of, I hope it's not too traumatic for you to keep going back to the rugby field. But, it is, you know. actually. I, I, I am, I am <laughs> I'm being triggered as we speak. But, uh, well, let's, okay, let's, but, but it's, if we could bond on rugby. Yes, it was very good for me to have my head smashed in. And have no, my... But, but the, the thing about that is the guy who smashed your head and who smashed my head in, if he'd done it in the high street, he'd been arrested and gone to prison. Yes. He can do it on the sporting field and be a hero. He can release that inner tension on the sporting field. And that's what Freud sort of says, you know, with this bundle of, of dark desires. But it's important, therefore, that society keeps these desires corralled, but also allows for moments when they can be 
relatively safely and harmlessly released sport art politics twitter now i think might might well fit into that kind of framework so freud makes the the human self darker and also makes it more sexual i think the 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 critical move and, and freud is not entirely responsible for this because i think the move is happening in the 19th century anyway but freud gives a, a sort of scientific footing to the idea that human beings, we can define ourselves in in significant degree according to our sexual desires. And hence, you already mentioned the LGBTQ. I think the T is a little different. The Q is a little different. But when you come to LGB kind of talk or talk about being straight, you're essentially using sexualized categories for identity there that you'd be hard-pressed to find in, in the 18th century. Rousseau makes some very critical comments about people we would now say were homosexual in his confessions, but he doesn't really have access to the, the concept of sexual orientation or sexual identity in the way that we do. So Freud is a, a key player in, in the transformation of this, this inner notion of the self. And then, in your view, something really fundamental changes in the 60s, that, that, that at some point, sexual liberation takes over. And for you, this, this is a particularly problematic development. You, it's, you, 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 you put your finger on one point. You, you talk about when Ronald Reagan signed no-fault divorce in the 70s in California as really <clears throat> a key moment in the redefinition of, of, of our civil relationships and sex. But also, of course, there is the techno another technology, the pill, which completely removes, well, doesn't completely, but vastly alleviates uh, the possibility of having a baby when, after you've had sex. And, and also, one might add, modern medicine makes childbirth so much less dangerous. In other words, you, there is a bunch of stuff to make sex safer with far fewer conse social consequences and personal consequences at the same time that marriage laws are also being loosened up. And you think this is the, you think that this is a not like the others a sort of positive development in which in which people trapped in miserable marriages or or, or gay people trapped in fake marriages are so sort of slowly become able to have happier lives, but one in which in which the modern world is destabilized in some fundamental way. Yeah, I I think what first of all I want to track backtrack a little bit to the nineteen thirties, where okay, the sort sure, of the please. philosophy of the sexual revolution is is really formulated by, among others, but perhaps preeminently Wilhelm Reich, who was a one time assistant of Sigmund Freud, who he's he's loosely associated with the Frankfurt School of Critical Theory and he he fuses Marxism and Freudianism together in a very interesting way. And, and I think he makes the, the obvious point that once you start thinking about identity in terms of sexual desire, once you start categorizing people in terms of their sexual orientation, then laws governing what was once considered to be behavior becomes become effectively laws governing identity. So the law, law you know, against a particular sexual act ceases to be really a law against that sexual act and becomes a law against the people who find their, their sexual desire and identity be fulfilled in that sexual act. It takes 30 years, as you pointed out, it takes 30 years really for Reich's thinking to become plausible because 
the whole notion of of sex as something that can be engaged in with with relative impunity relative to pregnancy and disease etc requires technological development so there's a background to to the 1960s what i think we see there is a fundamental change then in in the purpose of what sex is sex becomes recreational it becomes something about personal fulfillment rather than something primarily tailored or aimed at the procreation of children and that's where i think the significant move comes now when you come down to to issues of gay marriage that you've raised you'd say to truman truman what do you think about gay marriage well i'd say well i i disagree with gay marriage but i would also say that i have no particular interest in the government policing what goes on in people's bedrooms i i don't have any interest in that that's between them and god that's their responsibility that's not something i want the government interfering with but tell yeah. me okay go on but tell me just, what your problem is with with sex being embedded in the notion of identity because that seems to be where you think we've made a sort of a, a, a wrong step yeah i think the primary problem for me is this that it it takes place within an anthropology that i think and i could be i may be wrong i could be persuaded otherwise on this but i think it it plays into an anthropology that goes back to rousseau that really sees human beings as as individuals and sees our relationships as being contractual sees our fundamental characteristic as being that of autonomy and i would want to argue that that human beings we're not primarily autonomous we actually exist in a network always exist in a network of obligations and dependencies and if you start to isolate something like sexual activity and say that is who i am and my sexual fulfillment is the most important thing about me you start to downgrade and downplay what i think very important i would regard as natural obligations take no fault divorce for example it fascinates me that no fault divorce really doesn't take account of the children the children are are to be dealt with after the divorce if you like there to be collateral damage that comes out of the divorce but the responsibilities to the children are not taken into account with regard to whether the divorce is legitimate or not so my concern so is not so much that you could you could say that there's a, a social imaginary rooted in the individual that you and about choice and a social imaginary rooted in what is given and what is your obligation yeah um, there's you let me quote you your book you you contrast a mimetic view regards the world as having a given order and a given meaning and thus sees human beings as required to discover that meaning and conform themselves to it. Poiesis, by way of contrast, sees the world as so much raw material out of which meaning and purpose can be created by yeah. that individual. Th that's the, those are the two options, right? That you're, yeah. Well, at least the two ideas you're sketching. Yes. And when you think about, go to the social imaginary thing and go back to the Middle Ages, 1450. A mimetic world is very easy to believe in then. You know, you're probably, a, you know, if you grew up in my village, you're going to be a peasant farmer. You better understand the rhythm of the seasons. Otherwise, you're going to starve pretty quickly. There is a fixity to the world that, that you need to learn. Education growing up, if you like, is coming to understand the fixity of that world and, and fit yourself into it. Poiesis is where the world becomes increasingly raw raw material, which is in some ways what technology tilts us towards. I guess we'll come to the, the trans issue in a little bit, but I would say 
the trans issue is very, I miss this completely in my book. And it's something I've been thinking about a lot since. The trans issue is very technologically related because it connects to a technological view of the world. And I would, you know, if I could sort of throw, a, not exactly a question, but but, but sure. uh, push it. You, uh, Andrew, I, I've read your stuff on, on marriage. There's a sense in which I think that your understanding of marriage is, is kind of a poetic, a kind of a mimetic one. That when you're arguing for gay marriage, you are very much seeing marriage, I think, as something stable and desirable. And therefore, the, the incorporation of gay couples into that as, as really joining, for want of a better term, a, a kind of conservative and stable institution. What I've seen happen in the years since, of course, is that I think, and I'm not say I don't think you're in this camp at all, but there's a certain poiesis dimension to this. There are some really pushing for a view of marriage as not something that's stable, but as a kind of institution that can be gerrymandered in, in any way you wish to, to, to accommodate any, any kind of relationship. Would, would you see a sort of mimetic aspect to your own thinking? Um, yes, uh, but I, th I think that there's, I, I, I find it hard to completely separate out the two in the, in the modern world because we, are, we have both. We, we did have, we inherited a given order, as it were, but that order has also been subject to generations of evolution socially and morally and technologically, as you point out, and the emergence of an individual identity, expressive individualism, so that our modern lives are a kind of balancing act between what is given, what is the order, and what we choose to make of it. Now, now what, what interests me here is the given order. So you, and for me, there is something I will call nature. Yeah. Because, and I, and I mean that in a broad sense, the world as it is, that is always going to be here, that is made up a certain way. Science is our, at this point, our only common discourse around what that is, but it's a given order within which human beings, of course, can adapt and and understand it differently or or have different morals with respect to it so so let's let's go to this question of of homosexuality because it's a, it's one of these really it's where uh, mimesis and poesis kind of come together really it's it, aquinas aquinas himself was was saying the following like the, 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 the weird thing about this subject as he said observing nature is that it's clearly in nature, but it does not seem to be of nature in the sense that this act is the, the, the buggery, as it were, and, and we're reducing this to animal fucking, which is obviously in terms of the human behavior, trivializing and, and, and but nonetheless, clearly no babies are going to be made by Mr. Hare and the hares apparently were at it all the time. They were species renowned for their proclivities and their backdoor shenanigans. Uh, uh, but he could see that that existed. So it's natural, but yet it didn't seem to be in nature to him. So he was kind of st stuck in this kind of perpetual. Well, it seems to me that that's true of a lot of things in our world. There's, there's biology, there's genetics, and then there's the environment, you know. And so we are constantly in dialogue between these two things. And, and, and my view of politics in a modern world is simply finding the least we can agree on yeah. and, and not trying to force the issue too much because 
we can't resolve the issue finally. So let's just leave it there. And, and, and we don't have to push it to mean everything you want it to mean. So does that make sense? So with marriage, I'm saying, yes, I don't think that, that when a heterosexual married couple has procreative sex that creates a baby, I do think that is some intrinsic part of the heterosexual marital experience. And it can never be a part of a same-sex marital experience. On the other hand, it'll happen maybe three or four times max in your entire lifetime for one couple. And, and in the others, every single of those acts is indistinguishable in terms of its procreative capacity. And so let's, let, let's not ha- – my point is let's not ha- – you don't have to hackle yeah. over yeah. And, and, and when I want civil marriage, I absolutely simultaneously with as much fervor believe in the right of anybody from any religious tradition to say, I do not recognize that within my tradition as a marriage. I don't want anything to do with it. I mean, I, I don't, I don't favor being rude to people or ill-mannered or, or bigoted, but I totally defend the idea that, no, that's not a marriage as far as I'm concerned. So it's, is the, why isn't that kind of just a, a, a sensible compromise? Yeah, well, it's a, it's a good way of putting it. I think to go to the sort of Aquinas point, if we were to look at the Protestant tradition, the Protestant tradition would say, well, you know, the world is fallen. And therefore, the way nature behaves is not necessarily the way nature should behave. Now, how do you establish what what behavior in nature is is fallen and what is value neutral or okay? Then, as a Protestant, you've got to go to the Bible. And I understand that that yes, bi- but here here we here. Let me just stop you right there because it's an important thing because that issue is no longer an issue. Darwin has happened. We know if if there is a teleology in nature. It's certainly not what we thought it was. It is about the reproduction of genes and the and the the natural selection. That's it, right? Well, and so that's we know that think, for a fact. So we yeah. can't. You can't suddenly come along and say, "Well, actually, no. The purpose is something else." You just can't. Well, I think if you buy into Darwin, then you have to get rid of all teleology. I uh, think you do. In which case, I think it becomes hard to and i know you've done this andrew it becomes hard to criticize things like the the trans lobby for example it becomes hard to argue against anything that we can do you know why shouldn't we do it if we can do it and there i think is is where i would say your position might be might be problematic well By no, the way, I, I would... no 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 i'm just saying that at, at, at root we do know why things the way they are are the way they are biologically and genetically on planet Earth. We, we, we know a lot about that. We know that our activities are propelled by genes and genetics, but we also know that they are conditioned also and by our environment, by what we believe in our heads, by our education, by our sense of morality. So in other words, no, there's, there's no contradiction here. Uh, that, that's where I think you and I would ultimately disagree. I still so, want to maintain... Let's thrash out where, where, where exactly... Well, like how, well, how do I know, for example, how do I know that having a gay relationship is, is wrong? Where does the given order prove that to me? Well, I don't think the given order as you experience it does prove that to you. I think you have to go to divine revelation at that point. And then the question becomes, do you believe in divine revelation or not? And if you don't, then I think the problem we would have is... I'm arguing from a different meta-narrative. I'm arguing from a different authority to, to that you're arguing from yourself. Yes, except the truth cannot be in conflict with God. 
That's it, true. So, so what we're when we know something to be true, and I think we know that about evolution, it means that our previous understanding of what God was, if it if it rested upon something that is untrue, has to be abandoned. Well, it's I, I'd is want... what matters. I think evolution is more contested than you think, even among evolutionary scientists. It's a theory, I think. I don't think, as far as I see the literature, there is a consensus on how it takes place or precisely what its significance is. I mean, I do think that the, the think loss of... general acceptance that, that, that the Earth has been evolved, that, by, that organisms on Earth evolve according to the rules of natural selection, it's lasted, that theory has lasted an ex extremely long time. So, for example, it's how we understand differences in, say, running ability. Like, it's clearly just a function of the genetics of, and the luck of the draw and all the rest of it that's just happened. We know this. So w w why would we not understand something like homosexuality in that context? So, for Believe example, you've... you could argue homosexuality should have died out because you're not reproducing. How does this work? And that's a, a, it's a, no one's quite figured out the full evolutionary nature of why homosexuality continues to exist. But it seems to me that would be a way of looking at it. Similarly, you could look at the brain. You could look at all sorts of other empirical or biological questions to determine what homosexuality is. But how would you go about it? Go, go about arguing that it was wrong. What it, what it is. Oh, what it is. I, I would say it is a, a misdirection of nature. I think sexual desire is good. I think sexual desire has the telos of the union of a man and a woman. It has the telos of, of the reproduction of, of the species. And so I would see homosexuality as not fulfilling those two criteria. Now, when it comes down to, to ascribing a moral value to that, that I think is where you and I would differ because I'm going to go to the Bible at that point. And you're going to say, well, no, we can, we can give a decent account of this through evolutionary science, which I think neatly sidesteps any notion of having to give a, a moral account of what's, of what's going on. Would, would someone who is biologically incapable of having children, an infertile person, be equally excluded from marriage? Because no. they, they also cannot <clears throat> fulfill the obligation of the possibility of procreation. No, and again, here I would, I would actually draw on the Catholic tradition to that and say, if somebody's sterile, if a heterosexual couple happen to be sterile, that's accidental. It's, a, it's an accidental property. It's unfortunate, but it doesn't negate the idea that marriage should be, to, be between... Couldn't a, it a just be accidental that someone is homosexual? Well, then I think we get into the, com the physical complementarity of the human body. I think there's a sexual complementarity there. Human bodies are designed to fit together sexually in some ways and, and but, not in others. But, but, but let us say, in fact, for example, a relationship is not involved, does not actually after a long time or even at the beginning involve sodomy, as it were. Although every time a person, a man wears a, a condom, he is engaging literally in sodomy that is a so i but in in, in those terms if you are actively intervening to prevent procreation in an act through using contraception that would seem to me to be no different a violation of the end if, if all sex has to be procreative than a, a gay couple and i think this is why the catholic position the catholic objection to homosexuality is is stronger than the protestant one because Catholicism is consistent on the, on the contraception position. And that's something I'm wrestling with myself, actually. I've not yet thought that one through. 
Well, I, I suggest you do. <laughs> I will. <laughs> it's a, it's, my my it's, Catholic friends are always pressing me on well, that, so I, I, believe me, I feel the pressure. <laughs> and, but it's, but here, here, let me let me let me let me let's not do Darwin so much as let's do let's let's play Aquinas for a second. Okay, let's just play with with Thomas Aquinas. We're looking at human nature. We look at the human sexual dynamics, which we now know more about than Aquinas did. We know that men produce amounts of sperm in the gazillions all the time. And there is, even if one was completely monogamous with one woman that you could only really, you're producing a gazillion times more sperm than you would need if you were naturally designed to just have a few babies and have your sexual sexuality be about reproducing. Other species aren't so constantly producing sperm. They, they come into mating seasons or they don't. The males aren't so constantly needing to get rid of sperm. If you don't, your body will do it for you. That's how, that's, I, if that is not nature, what is? I, I, I agree with you there, but I think for, for the, well, then, the issue... For... Well, then it makes no sense. <laughs> then, then, then if that's true, then it seems as if that the conventions that required us to have just one individual lifelong only for marriage were is, is is inappropriate for the natural order of the given order of the world well as i said earlier i have no interest in in the government policing this i have no interest in in you going to prison andrew no uh, i know you uh, won't absolutely. i know i'm not um, let's assume that we live in today and no one's going to get hurt from any of this i'm just interested in the in why one thing is okay and one thing isn't and the trouble when it comes to something like it doesn't matter the fertility, what matters is the heterosexuality, is that it gets very close to being tautologous. <laughs> if you just say, well, marriage is between a man and a woman, this went on for a while back in the day. And you're like, well, you'll just keep repeating yourself. It's a bit like a, a trans woman is a woman. It's like at some point, you know, we're not going to get anywhere by repeating this. So tell me, what is... What 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 is homosexuality? I mean, let's not make this personal. I don't care. I'm, you can't offend me. That is against the given order because it, 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 it. We know that it can't be just because you can't procreate, because people who can't procreate and are straight can. There's nothing wrong with their their having relationships and marriages. Well, I've said there's a sexual complementarity to the to the human body, a given sexual complementarity that is not there when men copulate with men or women try to copulate with women. Put it bluntly, the, the penis is designed to be inserted into the vagina and the vagina is designed to have the penis inserted into it. Thank you. And I think you know, we know we we know that there can be some fairly serious results from from breaching those kind of things for heterosexuals. You know, it's not it's not a, a, a homosexual thing. I, I think so, I think this is absolutely central to this in a way because uh, I, I once talked about my old Latin teacher who, who who who's summed up the entire argument Christian argument homosexuality with two words where he said wrong hole. I've read you say that actually in one of your articles. <laughs> I think and, yes, yes. And, you know, I'm not going to deny the intuitive nature of that. It's true. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it goes to the mimesis poiesis thing. Does the body have a sexual an authoritative sexual structure or or not and i think that where you and i would differ is we would say i would want to say yes and i think you would want to say well if you want to say yes you would say it in a more highly qualified way than i well, would yes, or perhaps you would not want to say to yes at all the brain is part of the body and this is where we get into difficult areas right so so 
all I can tell you is because there we don't know scientifically or, or there are many different theories and many of them are worth thinking about, but I don't know why I have never felt sexually or emotionally attracted to a woman and have always felt emotionally and sexually attracted to other men. Don't know, have no clue. All I can tell you is that it's true and, and I'm not making it up and Everything I know from my straight peers and friends and brothers and sisters is that it's basically the same experience, just switched around. And so, so I was, this was something, this was a given thing, not a choice. It was a given order. And homosexuality is part of the given order. And, and it may be a wrinkle that doesn't fully fit into everything. There are lots of, lots of examples of that in human behavior and diversity, you know, Gerard Manley Hopkins has a lovely poem about, about the, 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 the oddnesses of nature and the fact that there are always variations on themes. And I think if I were forced to sort of go back into what a given order is, I, and I, I, I've written this in Virtually Normal and in other places, that I, I, I think the, the, the continued existence of the homosexual is kind of a mystery. But it's not a mystery that I want to stamp out. It's a mystery that, that I think God fully understands and and creates. I cannot understand any other way of describing it. I can't understand it as a sickness, for example. How would you analogize it? I mean, that's a good question. How do you analogize homosexuality? Is there something else like it that well, would present yeah. the same challenges? I suppose my, my interest in, in homosexuality, to the extent I have an interest in it, is, is the way it functions as an identity today. I mean, that's really the burden of the book, it was not so much to get into, is this right or wrong, but how is it mm -hmm. that we've reached this point? And that's where I think analogies become difficult, because there is, when something is foundational to one's identity, it's hard to find analogies to those things. <laughs> I mean, as you said, they just are. Well, you could be left-handed, uh, say. Yeah. That's something no one seems to choose. No but it doesn't function sociologically as sexuality does. I mean, we don't talk about the left-handed community. Though I, actually, I need to qualify that. On some of they the fountain did, pen think, blogs, uh, well, I was going to say, on some of the fountain pen blogs I read in my nerdiness, uh, they do talk about this, I think. But I, I don't well, think why do there's, you an, think there's an identity because you're right. I mean, your identity can be made up of any number of things, or or not much at all. You, you could just refuse to be identified with other things and just yeah. be you. But why do you think sex, sex, for the modern person, has become such a identifier, such an identity marker? Yeah. I think a couple of reasons. One, I, I would, you know, I've been asked numerous times over the last couple of years, you know, do I think sexual identity is like racial identity? And I think it is not because I think race, race really emerges in the 19th century as a concept and it could just as easily disappear in 100, 150 years time, as powerful as it seems now. I think the world has always been marked by the power of the erotic, the erotic drives of human beings. It's why you know, we can read the Iliad today and understand what's going on because we understand one guy falls in love with another guy's wife, can't control himself, runs off, et cetera, et cetera. So I think, first of all, there is something in human nature where we have to acknowledge that, that the erotic is, is powerful, regardless of whether that's homosexual eroticism, heterosexual eroticism, sexual drive, sexual desire is, is powerful. Secondly, I think we're seeing 
a crumbling of traditional forms of identity around us. We're seeing the crumbling of traditional forms of community. I think you know, we, could, we could simplistically reduce it to, say, family, religious institution, and nation. Three, a hundred years ago, three pretty solid given ways of knowing who you are. You know, whatever happened at school when I was a kid, I went home. Mum and dad were always there. I knew who I was because my mum and dad provided me with a solid, stable home. I think a lot of people today don't have that. And they also have technology that is further scrambling notions of community and friendship. And yet we still, we still all want to belong. And I think what the LGBTQ community did was, was provided and does provide a strong community for people. And that's attractive. If, if, you, if you're subject to, if you are identifying as a homosexual and you want to belong, there is a community for you, a solid community to which you can belong and that can give you your identity. And that's why I think sexual identity has two reasons. One, sexual desire is powerful. And two, community organized around sexual desire has emerged as powerful in the last 40 or 50 years. Those why are either of those two things bad? Well, I don't think on the level of, I, I don't think the fact that sexual desire is powerful is a bad thing. But there's a powerful element of our identity now. But, and, and I'm just kind of curious as to why that was. Yeah. I mean, couldn't you say, you know, with before the sexual revolution, before the women's equality, that, that people were very much defined by their sex and their sexual desire, that, that societies were structured around the, the sea of male sexual power and responsibility so that sexual identity has absolutely always been a core element of, of, of identity itself. And all that's happened is that it has expanded little to allow a small minority not to be defined out of existence, essentially. Well, you're, you're putting forward, I think, a pretty standard and, and fairly compelling analysis there, the argument that really you know, heteronormativity has been the thing in the West up until fairly recently. So I think you can take that line. I would, I think, quibble with the idea of a, of a small minority being allowed. And I think heteronormativity has been fundamentally destabilized over the last 15 or 20 years. So I do think we're living in a very, very different time. And one of the ways I think you can tell that is if heteronormativity was, say, dominant in early 19th century Britain, no one would have defined themselves as straight. They wouldn't have used sexual categories. Now, one can argue they wouldn't have used them because it was the very air they breathed. But I think what we see now where, you know, I'll, I will identify myself as straight, the very fact that I, as a heterosexual male, will do that indicates something of what's gone on within the culture at this point. And why is it a bad thing? I think when, when we start to categorize people on the basis of subjective desires, where be they straight desires, homosexual desires, or whatever, you start to strain society in, 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 in difficult ways. How? Some so, of the, uh, let, let, let's, first of all, let's talk about objective desire, which yeah. is just, it, it, it's not an elaborate desire for sex with people of the same or opposite sex. It is just this very basic orientation towards yeah. having sex. Uh, uh, so why, like, how is that altered? It seems to me, I, I just think the world is heterosexual, not heteronormative, because most people are, and I don't really care. <laughs> I mean, well, I, and I don't think they've been particularly sidelined. I mean, I, 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 it's still the vast majority of marriages. It's still the 
basic assumption of everyone. And I, 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 I don't see why a little extra inclusion should destabilize the whole thing. That's, that's I think, where we're yeah. disagreeing right now. How does yeah. that happen? How does that happen? How does the, what the destabilizing yeah. happen? Well, I think it happens. It's, it's putting tremendous pressure, for example, on religious liberty. This was where you know, one of the origins of my book was not actually the, the gay issue so much as the trans issue. When the local school district where my kids had already graduated, but where they went to the public schools in Philadelphia, introduced trans bathroom policies in 2016. And I, I wrote a letter to the school board, a very gentle letter to the school board about it. But I started to think about how the new way of carving up identities was going to affect everybody, particularly the trans issue. I, I, I think the L, the G, and the B is a little different. If I have a gay couple living next to me, it neither picks my pocket nor breaks my leg, as Thomas Jefferson would say. When I have bathroom policies being changed, et cetera, et cetera, then that starts to impinge upon my life. And where I think this is being destabilizing is where, you know, for example, cake bakers, or as we're seeing, I think, at the Supreme Court at the moment, website designers, their religious convictions about these things, which you may regard as, as irrational, or you may well disagree with them, but their religious convictions on these things are coming under acute pressure in the public square in a way that I think is destabilizing. I, I think that is a problem. And I know that you've written against that kind of thing, Andrew, so I, I, I suspect we sort of agree on some of the civics Yes, of this. except but that's where I see the pressure. Here's a point, yes, and I'm basically pretty much defensive of religious freedom concerns because I think, in fact, people of fundamentalist or evangelical or orthodox Christianity are culturally being othered in a way that I find unpleasant, to be honest with you. I, I, I just find it uncivil. And I, I love this country's religious freedom. And however, uh, Sometimes it feels to me as if people are being a, a, a whining a little too loudly. It, 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 so, so, for example, let's say you're designing websites and you don't want to design one to celebrate a gay wedding because like, you're not, you're an evangelical Christian, you don't believe in that. What about yeah. someone comes along and says, I'd like to have a Muslim wedding, which is an arranged marriage, and I'd like you to do that website. Why is that person not objecting to that as well? Why well, you it, have to ask... Well, I know, I know, but why? You, you'd have to ask them. We don't get those uh, cases, do we? I know, I know, and that, that's interesting. It's a little bit like, you know, a, 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 more, a more pointed one, I think, would be what, what about happens of the couple who've, you know, the two couples, they both committed adultery, they're now marrying each other. It's an adulterous marriage. Yeah. That, that too is unbiblical, and, and I you think they're... On that either. And, uh, part of me thinks this is, this is an issue just kind of inventing itself. I mean, this particular case in the Supreme Court, no one did anything. It's just a, it, there were actually nobody, nobody did anything to initiate the sort. It was brought pre proactively to defend. Now, in general, in general, I don't want to inter inter interfere with anyone's acts of conscience. But how can that destabilize heterosexual marriage? I mean, really, it's 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 a super trivial, isn't it? Can we just? I agree with. I think people are assholes for demanding this, and I think people are probably being a little persnickety in denying the right to, to, do, to, to do things for just a gay couple, which I think they're going out of their way to be offended. And I don't like that, whether it's on the religious right or the, the wokey left. Just like, yeah. and, I, and I think the general point you're making there, Andrew, is very valid. And that's why in the book I say, you know, heterosexual marriage is really destabilized, I think, in 1970 by 
Ronald Reagan. And I think the church has been complicit in that. You know, how many churches took a hard stand on no-fault divorce? None that I'm aware of. So I think you, you know, you're landing some very good punches here. And, and, I would, and I would agree with you. I think the problem with the church is the church has been complicit in the downgrading and the destabilizing of marriage for, for several generations. And if you want to see, you know, if you would say to me, okay, Truman, so how is gay marriage destabilizing? Well, it, it's simply another pebble on the pile at this particular right. point. And, I think and, that and you're aware, the, the die has been cast. I, I think you're aware, though, that there is always something like if you keep going back to the same pebble when there are a million of others, maybe, maybe yeah. your, maybe your priority is a little off. Yeah. But we can agree with that. But let's, but, but what I liked about your book was its realism. So you're saying, look, I'm losing. <laughs> this vision that I have of the given world, which is essentially a biblical, biblically built one, is no longer the social imaginary I live in. Yeah. And part of you is saying this is going to be a bad thing for society because, in fact, and I agree with you with this, that the more children who are brought up in stable two-parent homes the happier humanity will be. It, we just know that to be the case. However, in the aggregate, there's going to be some miserable kids too, but in the aggregate, that will work. Well, yes. I mean, yeah. let's, let's be honest about what marriage can be and has been for lots of people, not some fun. So what, what do you, where do you go? Aren't you in danger of just being just a Jeremiah, someone who's, or, or you know, we read Alistair McIntyre, which is a beautiful yeah. book. After Virtue is a stunning book. It's very hard to recover from, actually, I think, philosophically, except it becomes then this kind of like solipsistic reactionaryism that just wants to bury itself yeah. into some yeah. imaginary past that I bet, I bet wasn't all that great either. I bet there was a lot of <laughs> screwing around in high middle ages. Yeah. I bet there was a lot of adultery. I bet there was a lot of buggery. I bet people were just, I mean, we all like to think they're all entranced with enchantment, but I'm sure they had a lot of human oh. feelings as well. Yeah, you, you definitely need to live in a world where there's a modern sewage system, I think. That's absolute minimum. Well, or modern justice the flourishing system, for God's life. sake. And yes, trial by fire does not really appear no, honor very killings, much. You name yeah, it. Yeah. So I don't want to sound like that, that English guy on White Lotus. Yeah, I suppose. It was, you know, who wants to go back there? It was like awful. People yeah, hacking themselves yeah. to bits. This is the yeah. best possible yeah. world. So what do you say to that guy? Is it white, the white, I'm sorry, you probably didn't see it. But there's this character in White Lotus yeah. who just gives this little speech. He's a working class. He's basically in some criminal syndicate. And he just says, because this, this rather wealthy, young, precious woman is upset about a million different things. And he's like, you know, why are you complaining? This is the best we're ever going to live in. We're lucky as hell. And just why don't you just shut it? That was, I think he's used to the word <laughs> shut it, which yeah, I was standing yeah. up and sort of cheering in, in a way. But but uh, come on, you're free to practice your faith, yeah. free to have your marriages recognized absolutely in law. Absolutely. You can yep. preach from any pulpit you want yep. in America. Absolutely. Presumably, uh, I, society, if this is a terrible thing for society, if, if the collapse of marriage is, and I think it is a bad thing. I, I don't think there's any question that it is. Maybe we'll figure a way out of it. Maybe the evidence will pile up that we really need to do something and we will finally get yeah. to do it. Yeah. But how do you, how do you not be a sore loser? How do you, 
How how do you act? How is what's your position vis-a-vis the modern world now? Well, I'm a pretty cheerful guy on the whole, anyway. You seem it. So, you uh, seem absolutely charming. <laughs> and oh, we yeah. have a great beer. Talk about rugby. Uh, yeah. Well, I would I would say first of all, life's always a balance sheet, anyway. There's all you know, as you point out, any area you live in, there's going to be some bad stuff. I yeah, I I, I would say to friends when I hear them lamenting, you know, I've lived my life without ever having to go through the draft. I've never been made to fight in a trench. I've never been sent to the Western Front. I've had a, a blessed and very happy life. I think there's a huge amount to be grateful for in America. I said at the beginning, America's been very good to me. I, I affirm everything you say about America. It's great to live in, in a free country. I think that it's, it's also perfectly legitimate for Christians to use the civil liberties they have to press for the things that are most important to them. I think when we lose, it's important to be gracious losers. I, I do not intend to spend whatever little time is left to me being bitter and angry about, about losing stuff. I think there are certain battles, and, and the, the gay marriage battle is, is not... Is, it, I think we've, culturally and socially, we have lost that one. I, I don't think that that is one that, that there is any point in, in litigating at this point in time. My big concern, I think, is the trans issue, particularly how it impacts younger kids. To me, that's, that's a pressing issue. Well, so I think there are I, genuine questions there that, that yeah, those and, of us and I regard want, ourselves as very pro-trans. When it comes yeah. to children there, it's, it's a whole different yeah. kettle of fish. And that's where I would say, you know, I'm also an Augustinian. And what I mean by Augustinian? I, I, I'm a two cities guy. I'm a citizen of two cities. I'm a citizen of the heavenly city, but I'm also a citizen. Of, well, I'm actually a resident alien here, but soon to be a citizen <laughs> of the earthly city of America. And you and I have certain things. We have certain interests in common. You know, we want the streets to be safe for women, men, women and children to walk around. We want uh, the urban sprawl and the deprivation of our inner cities uh, cleaned up. We stand on different sides of the gay issue, but I bet if we chatted in depth about the ravages of the sexual revolution among the inner cities of this country, you and I would stand four square on quite a number of issues there. Look, I would the sexual say that, revolution killed a lot of, well, in and of itself, but there were a lot of dead gay men because of a virus that was undoubtedly spread at the peak of, of, of sexual liberation, which obviously no one intended and it was horrifying. But the idea that sex without limits is never without is always without costs yeah. is is just something that no one can fully i think believe in but <laughs> here i go again but i i do i am i am glad i do not live in a society where the given order says that i don't actually exist and that we can't even talk about who you are and and everything about you is, is absolutely diabolical. And that's where we were not so long ago. And it seems to me that for Christians to lament that is perverse. Yeah, but I don't lament the passing of that, Andrew. And I, I made this comment about Rousseau earlier on. I think one of Rousseau's great insights, although, of course, it's only for men. It's not for women. We need Mary Wollstonecraft to sort of sort him out on the women front. I think one of the great things that, that Rousseau does is he grants a universal human dignity to everybody. And I'd want to say to you, I, I would never want to treat you as not existing. I don't want to treat you as a general category. But the social imaginary as, did. I know. And, and, we I had think to, and, change, and that change is a, is, a, is a good thing. I think it's a good change. I fear that we're beginning to 
tilt in the other direction at this point, that we're just replacing one lot of categories with another lot of categories that allow us to make other people disappear. Yes, but uh, I think the two but, of us agree on something called nature or the given order, which separates us from postmodernists who don't. And yeah. that in, in some ways that we can argue about whether that given order is Darwin or whether it is some kind of Christian teleology or Greek teleology or whatever, but we agree there's something there. What's new, it seems to me, and I think that homosexuality is simply a part of the natural order, which had not been sufficiently integrated into our social imaginary in a responsible and humane way. And that's how I understood what we were doing, which is that it's done now. And, and, and now, now, now our task is to figure out a way to live our lives better and to t tend to the people we love and to, and to live constructive good lives. But compared to, the, compared to the opposite, which is there is no reality, there's no objective reality, that in fact the purpose of life is to deconstruct all that reality mm. and that meaning is ultimately completely pliable and that the body has nothing to tell you about the nature of humans. That I think we can agree with. And I think that's, you see, what, what I get frustrated by is that there are many of us, gay and lesbian people, who, who have tried to make arguments that are actually well within mainstream conservative understanding. And there may be differences, but it's certainly within the same context. And yet instantly we're treated as if we are the worst revolutionaries ever. So that gay marriage, which I fought the left for, is now regarded by you as this great victory for the LGBTQ plus IA 2S WXYZ people. It isn't. It wasn't. And now they can co-opt it, but, but and I'm favor fine co-opted. They have a big do today at the White House. I'm not invited, but that, that's fine, he said. Not bitter. Why were, why were you not invited, Andrew? I, well, I, you know as well as I do. I'm, not, I'm just not kosher. It's, it's, it's fine. I made myself not kosher. I, it, it's, it's a good thing. But, and I wouldn't go anyway. But where were we? I, that, 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 that in fact, you and I can agree on those things. And I, I wish that those of us, so that when, when there is a concern, for example, about trans medication, medication for kids who are gender dysphoric, which might be premature or might be unwise or might be rushed or all the rest. Of it. Those are completely genuine concerns that you and I, and I think trans activists should all agree on. We yeah. don't want kids to be put on the wrong track and we don't want to mislead and confuse children. No one should. But I don't see it as revolutionary. I don't. I do think there are revolutionary aspects of it, but I think, for example, on the trans question, I just think there are, I just know people for whom their brain sex is just different than their body sex. Now, I tend to think there's a biological component to this more than anything else. But I don't want those people who genuinely are trans to be, to be swept away with all the loony postmodernists and with all the non-binary and 30,000 different genders, yeah. which are all essentially pulled out of various Posterior. Yeah, and I and I think that's where you and I would find much to agree on. First yeah. of all, I don't think that you know the concept of trans covers a variety of conditions. My major focus in my, my sort of personal concern is on the sort of rapid onset gender dysphoria right. among young people that I think is really, really problematic. And I do think to to go back to sort of your earlier point, I think philosophically, realists can do business with each other in a way that sort of anti-essentialists. Uh, 
it's hard to do business with a radical queer theorist because <laughs> there is no doer behind the deed, et cetera, et cetera. I think at least you and I can have a conversation. We may not come to an agreement. We may walk away thinking the other one is, is a benighted fool or whatever. But I think we can have an agree. We can have a, a discussion because we actually do think there's something out there to discuss. It's not just a linguistic construct. No, in my case, I do think your fundamental point about the wrong hall has an obvious intuitive sense to it. I'm, I just, yeah. why would I deny that? I have to yeah. figure out why, therefore, my brain is wired a completely different way. But, but, but I think actually, we sat down and said, what laws are we going to? Yeah, I don't think we'd be that far apart, to be honest. Well, um, and that's where I think my Augustinian thinking kicks in, because I think if you're an Augustinian, then you can stand shoulder to shoulder with people who disagree with you on the heavenly city relative to what constitutes or, or a consider what con constitutes a considerable number of earthly goods. I'm, peace, I'm a bit more cheerful. I'm a bit more cheerful than Augustine I, <laughs> about human nature. <laughs> so am I. Uh, I mean, it's hard not to be. But the, <laughs> Definitely more cheerful than Pascal, I have to say. <laughs> yeah, but not, not as – and Pascal so just just brilliant. The Pensée is just oh. among the most extraordinary things I've ever read. Yes. Yeah. But, but, but when I see – and bear with me. When I see the existence of homosexual people, I can, you can see that you can spot them. <laughs> if, certainly if you're gay, it helps. From, as young, young kids or teenagers or grown-ups, there's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's something about that experience and that way of being human that's a real positive thing in the world. And it allows different opportunities to be human, to serve others. It, it, it offers great opportunity for mutual love and support and care and the tenderness and love and integrity of many of these relationships are things that no Christian would ever, I think, rationally be opposed to. They may be opposed to other parts of it, but, but that, those lives of self-sacrifice, people I witnessed taking care of each other as they died, it, you, right. you, you, will, you, of course... Uh, I wish Christians who are in disagreement would simultaneously not constantly lump us all in this category of, right. and, and, and because I think we're better than that. And I think they're better than that, to be honest with you. And I think we've gotten further wrong. But I, I want to, from your point of view, do you end up like Rod Dreher, and he'll get mad at me for even mentioning this, and disappear into your own little community with your own St. Benedict and just hope to God the winds blow over and at some point some kind of revival will occur. No, I was a pastor for some years. And when Benedict option came out, I was also teaching at a seminary and I remember reading it and, and some of the interpretations of it, of that sort of, we need to run up a hill, form a monastery and, and wait for the world to end or recover. I'm not sure that's what Rod was saying, but certainly that's, that's just impractical for, for most people. My congregants, they have student loans, they have mortgages, they have jobs. We're, we're deeply integrated into the society in which we find ourselves. And, and that's why we have a vested interest in, in connecting, being involved, in, in pressing for the society in which we live to be the best it can. And I was, I'm touched by your description there, because one of the things that came to my mind is, you know, one of the things that I think we've lost as a result of the sexual revolution, where things have become hypersexualized, we've lost the old concept of, of rich, close, passionate friendship that I think is something very important. I was chatting to a, a youth worker about six months ago, and he said, you know, 80% of the girls at my school, 14, 15-year-olds, they identify as lesbians. 
And I said, wow, that's, that's way out of kilter to the national. I said, why do you think that that is? And his comment to me was, he said, because we've never taught them what friendship is. And they have strong feelings for somebody of the same sex. And the only lens that we've given them is a sexual lens for understanding that. I, I think one of the things we need to do is recover rich friendships. You know, read the letters of Cardinal Newman to Ambrose St. John in the 19th century. I don't think Newman was a homosexual, but they're very passionate letters. Why? He and Ambrose St. John had a deep, deep, passionate friendship. I, and I you know, I, I wrote a, I, in Love or Detectable, I have a third chapter on friendship and, and the virtue of friendship. And I'd love, I'd love you to have a look at it and tell me what you think about it. But it, it's, I would love to it's read from, it. It's from Aristotle onwards, through Montaigne and Oakshot and the rest of it. But, and, and it's about, you know, I'll tell you this. I think if you look at a lot of gay male marriages, which, by the way, insofar as we have them at this point, a data, they tend to be lasting longer than lesbian marriages, uh, which is a surprise, maybe. Except when you think, in fact, a lot of the really long-term, stable, same-sex marriages aren't, aren't really about sex. They're, they're about friendship. They're about cohabitation. They're about taking care of each other. I mean, they start out maybe sexually, and then they, then they can sometimes open up. But once they get to where they are, I've seen these couples, and they are just like, if that's not married, what is? And, and, it's, and it is about friendship. And, and, and men, I, I think straight men, to be honest with you, have this great challenge. And I think it's also a failure of the church in not talking to straight men about about the joy of friendship with one another and how that makes everything yeah. much better. The loneliness out yeah. there is 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 really alarming and sad and unnecessary. Carl, we've been talking, talking, talking. I'm I'm so grateful for the conversation. I'm I'm I hope that we can be honest about these things and and be clear about where our differences are. I wish I could have a similar conversation with someone on the postmodern queer left, but I just don't think they would accept the terms of the conversation, <laughs> which is that we're both just individuals trying to think things through. Yeah, yeah. I think it's, yeah, and I think if civic society, civil society is to survive, people with deeply different opinions have to be able to engage in a polite and friendly manner on these things. An so equal manner. Yeah, yeah. You are the first gay person who's shown any interest in my book whatsoever. So I'm very grateful for well, the I'm, I'm... opportunity. <laughs> you, you gave me a bit of a spanking at, at one or two points, I know, but I, I am deeply okay, no. grateful for, for the connection. <laughs> I, it's all fun and games. I, 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 I think the wrong whole argument stands and I will have, I have to defer to it. Yeah, it's a, I, I need to try harder to do that. The trouble is that once your worldview is that there are no two equal individuals talking, reasonably. There's only yeah. a power structure and there's only yeah. an imbalance. And until you've corrected for that, you can't actually have an argument. That is so fundamental to, to the worldview that is the, the successor ideology that it, it is actually inimical to civil debate. It's, design, it's not design, it's designed to abolish that in favor of restructuring a power through coercion. That's what it does. So it's very hard to have an open conversation with people yeah. who really buy into that. Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. It's, you know, every conversation, it's not really a conversation, it's a power struggle. And that's just, it's so, it's, it's very sterile. Bloody view of the world. Yeah, yeah. Thank you, Carl. 
Thanks again for listening. We've had this amazing year here on the Dishcast. Coming up, as I said before, Glenn Lowry, someone I've always wanted to talk to, and John Gray, one of the most brilliant minds in the Western world, I would say. And I'm kind of with trepidation, just wondering what on earth I'm going to ask him. If you like this, if you enjoy this without ads and without interruptions, because we're thinking about maybe cutting it off halfway through to get you to subscribe, please subscribe to The Dish. It's easy. Some of you think you are subscribed, but you're not. I'm just letting you know that. It happened too often. Just double check. We're doing great, but we'd, we'd, we'd love your support and to continue this going. And I will see you after Christmas, I think. Is the, the, that's, the, that's the next time after Christmas. Have a wonderful Christmas. Happy New Year. And God bless. Mm-hmm.